Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Pownall, and welcome to another episode of AAEP Practice Life Podcast. Today, I'm joined with two special guests, Dr. Lisa Kivett of Foundation Equine in Southern Pines, North Carolina, and Dr. Mitch Rode of Clark Equine Wellness and Performance in Maryland, and also an AAP board member. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you. So what we want to talk about today is, you know, there's been a lot of negative press you know, discussions, you know, interest in, in equine practice. You know, I know we had a podcast with Dr. Amy Grice the latter part of 2019, and we talked about the new AVMA AEP economic survey and that it found that only 1.1% of recent AVMA accredited veterinary colleges want to go into equine practice. And it really is a declining scope. And I thought we needed to have a discussion about what is good about equine practice, the sort of pushback against the negative aspects of it. At the same time, this sort of started in a very circuitous kind of route. And I'm going to pass it over to Lisa, because Lisa, you know, you posted something on your Facebook page a couple months ago, I think it was, about a presentation you did at your alma mater. So perhaps you can just sort of share the context and what your message was. And then I'll pick it up and how I wanted to get the two of you together to start talking about the good in our profession. Sure. So I actually, I pulled up that post that I made on Facebook and I will just read it if that works for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I posted a selfie, which I am not normally prone to do in front of the vet school at NC State. And I said, I spent today and last night at my alma mater speaking to vet students and vet professionals at the Wolfpack Leadership Conference. I'm trying to help change the conversation around equine veterinary practice. Did you know that only 1% of vet students enter equine practice at graduation and that 50% of them will leave equine practice in the first five years? Yep. At the current rate, this industry is unstable and will collapse. Horse owners, will you be able to find a vet in 10 years? Do you want to help? Here's what you can do to help us change this. Be kind. Yep, that's it. Be kind to those rare and beautiful young equine vets. Don't haze them. Don't make comments about their age or how old doc just gave me a salve made of mercury and possum bones. Thank them for caring enough about horses to brave it in an industry that everyone has told them will eat them alive. Oh, and pay your bill. Signed, one of the last women standing. Well, that's wonderful. Mercury and possum bones. <laughs> In a salve, no less. In a salve. Yeah, well, we have come a little bit from that for sure. So what was the reaction when you wrote that? What, what was the feedback on your Facebook page? That was pretty wild because I, you know, pulled up in the driveway after, you know, coming home from Raleigh and just sat there for five minutes and just typed that out real quick. And it got shared a whole bunch and really ended up kind of all over everywhere. And I don't really still have the statistics on, but it, it was everywhere. And it started a nice conversation in several equine practice Facebook groups. And, you know, several people pointed out that the only problem isn't, you know, that clients are unkind. There's a lot more to it. But I think, you know, especially in a client facing post, um, I didn't really want to get into, you know, how we need to well, maybe charge them more or whatever. I felt like that was kind of what they needed to know here and now. And 
I mean, I, I certainly think it got a good conversation going amongst equine vets and, and I had a very positive response from clients and, and lay people as well. Yeah. And so I read that and I was like, you know what? Spot on. We, we need to be talking about this. And I did a blog at the end of the year, sort of looking at, you know, the decade in review. And really the big, you know, and I asked people what were the biggest changes that they had seen in practice from 2010 to 2020. And what it came down to, the number one overwhelming was just the harassment, bullying, negativity, what have you, you know, because of social media. And I think that is something new. So I think when you spoke about that and you wrote about that, Lisa, it really resonated with me in terms of to people of like, let's just be kinder to each other. Yeah. Because if that's the reason why people are leaving the profession or not entering the profession, I think that's an easier fix, you know, if we can start protecting vets. But I wanted to have a discussion because that just totally tricked me into thinking, you know what, there's some great things about this profession. Let's start talking about them. So let's turn it back over to you, Mitch. Maybe you just give us a bit of a background, how long you've been in uh, practice and a little bit about your practice and maybe just share some thoughts about what makes this profession exciting. Sure. I graduated in 1980, so I've been around for a long time. been practicing in the part of the world I'm in right now in Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia, uh, since 1982, so 38 years. And I started out as an associate in a mixed practice, and once I grew the equine portion of that practice to a certain point, then I struck out on my own as a solo practitioner. And since about 87 or so, I've been either a solo or one associate the entire time. And there were certainly some long days where it was just me and I kind of had to find my way along. This was before the days of social media where you could easily call up a colleague uh, on Facebook and say, hey, what would you do in this situation? So you just kind of stumbled along. And there were definitely some times where you questioned whether you knew what you were doing or whether you were doing the right thing or not. But... Um, I think some of the joy of equine practice uh, that you can look back at when you reach uh, terms of longevity that I have is some of those things that at the time seemed like uh, real ordeals turned out to be some of your best stories. You know, it's sort of like the thing that happens to you when you fall flat on your face and it's not funny at the time, but everybody else thinks it's absolutely hilarious. And then when you tell the story later, it's fun for everybody. And that's the way a lot of the experience and practice have been for me. In the moment, maybe they were ordeals or things that I could not believe I got myself into these situations. But now as I look back on them, they're actually the kind of stories that you enjoy telling that have helped you earn your stripes over the years. And in a way, there's sort of a, a sense of value that comes from that. And you say to yourself, you know, I'm really glad I did that. I'm really glad I had that experience. And in another setting or in another type of practice, I might not have had that. So that's one of the big ways I think that you can get some pleasure out of it is look at the long-term picture and take some of those short-term experiences that you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and realize that those are going to be the stories you're going to be able to tell later on. So I think that's a big component of it. And so, Lisa, you're a relatively new practitioner has the reality lived up or how much different is the reality from what you expected equine practice was going to be? You're correct. Mitch said he's been in practice for 38 years and I'm 38 years old. <laughs> I don't want to hear that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I feel like I was lucky in that 
I was relatively well prepared for this lifestyle. I spent a lot of time with equine vets, you know, as a pre-vet student and a vet student. Of course, I heard all the horror stories and they told me everything that the students these days are told. You know, it'll be terrible. You'll never make any money. Uh, You'll work all day. You'll never see your family. You won't have a family. You can't ride your horse. And I'm just the type of person that when people tell me what I can't do, I'm just definitely going to do that thing. So, you know, I I heard all of that negativity and I went into practice anyway, expecting that to perhaps hold true. And none of it has. I have been lucky to be able to sort of blaze my own trail and set my own way of doing things. And it's lived up to everything I wanted it to be and not what everyone else told me it would have to be. Mm -hmm. No, that's interesting. And I know in my, you know, we have a number of vets and predominantly most of our vets, sorry, Mitch, are underneath the age of 40. Uh, there's a couple on that, uh, the other side of it. So they might just have been in diapers when you graduated. Yeah. But, you know, all through the, the years that we've hired young vets, they've all said the same thing as you just said, Lisa. Yeah. You know, everybody tells them at school, if you're not, if you want to ride your horse, be a small animal vet, it's going to be a horrible lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I see some practices where I think that could be true. And I think those are the practices where you see that 50% attrition rate. But I think there's more and more practices that recognize that vets don't have to be on call 24-7, that there needs to be a bit of a balance, that personal pursuits, family pursuits are all great and we should celebrate them. So I think the change is happening. Uh, I see more and more practices as I'm out in a boat that are much more let's say youth friendly or, you know, welcoming to the, to the newer vets. So I think we really have a problem in our profession of dispelling this myth of what equine practice is. Would either one of you agree or or disagree on that point? Or are there other factors? I think there's multiple factors, but I think you make a very good point. And in some ways it goes back to how do we define success in equine practice. And one of the things that I decided early on, uh, my wife and I had two kids, and it was relatively early in our practice, in my practice time that we had our two kids. And I just made up my mind that I was going to style my practice such that I was not going to miss out on my family activities. And what that meant was maybe those clients that were particularly demanding and insisted that you be on call 24-7 and always wanted you there when they decided and not when you decided did not become my client. And maybe that meant that my practice didn't grow or become as high-powered a practice as other practices in my general area. But that was a choice that I made that I was going to define success in a different manner. I wasn't going to define it by having the biggest practice or the largest volume practice or the most clients or the clients with the biggest pocketbooks, I was going to have the practice that allowed me to have a comfortable living and spend time with my family. And by setting those parameters and defining success in that way, uh, that allowed me to, in fact, have those family times and set up that way. I coached baseball. I went to all my daughter's gymnastics meets. We were able to do all that stuff just by setting those guidelines and, uh, you know, made not maybe a fantastic living, but a comfortable living. Mm-hmm. So I think that that you just have to decide your parameters. So you set limits on what your practice would be or would not be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not as more of, if I'm listening to you correctly, it's not so much of what you wanted to be as what you didn't want to be. 
and you stuck yeah, to your guns. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. I, I, I remember reading an article, I think it was one of the early, early issues of Equus Magazine when Matthew McKay Smith was first developing a lot of that. And there was an article in there about a veterinarian and all his clients were talking about how wonderful he was and how great things were. And as I'm reading the article, I'm thinking, yeah, this is the kind of guy I would aspire to be. Well, then they turned the microphone over to him in the article. And he started talking about how many dinners he had missed and how many family activities he had missed and how his wife had raised his kids and he was absent from their lives and blah, 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 because he was dedicated to the profession. And I said, whoa, stop right there. That is not the guy I want to be. Right, right. So that that's literally when I made up my mind that I was not going to make myself that available to everyone because I wanted to have the other side of life as well. And how have you approached it, Lisa, when you started your practice and you've got a growing practice? What was your approach to this? Yeah, I loved hearing that story because I feel like I've done something very similar. I heard the same kind of things from older practitioners that said, you know, they never saw their kids and never had dinners at home. And, and I didn't want to do that either. So much the same way, I just kind of set my own boundaries and decided what was important to me. And at times in my life, you know, put ride my horse on my schedule and just did that. And now with kids, one thing that's important to me is making sure I never miss one of their doctor's appointments. And so I took this morning off and went to my daughter's doctor's appointment because it's just a point of pride for me never having missed one of those. And you know, I, I think that that's an opportunity that equine practitioners have that maybe isn't true in small animal or other veterinary careers. And I think celebrating these freedoms that we're able to give ourselves and putting more stories like ours out there for the young vet students. You know, Mike, you mentioned that, you know, the culture is changing. And I think there's a lot of people like all of us who want to see this become you know, a positive conversation about the culture in equine practice. And we're ready to help other people do what we're doing, but we're not, we're not going to be able to change it if there's no people entering it, you know, to, to be the change with us. Absolutely. Yeah. That to me is one of the scariest things is that, you know, we can't do this alone. We need to, we need to develop other people for sure. Both of you have your own practices and with that, uh, you know, there's a, some wisdom that comes with it. So, I mean, you're allowed to do a little bit more. So I've got two questions. The first one is, you know, with your experiences you're talking about, what kind of negative impact or was there a negative impact on your business from, you know, setting up your parameters? Like how, what, what kind of business, what, what change in your business by you saying no, instead of saying yes to everything? I'll take that. So, you know, Mike, I am going to take a moment to thank you for some of the work that you've done, you know, speaking at the AEP and stuff on culture, because some of the things you've said allowed me to make some changes in my life. And one thing that's sort of unrelated is you once said that a good day in equine practice feels like driving around and just seeing a bunch of your friends. And I've kind of taken that to heart and feel that way. And another thing is when you've talked before about going to a four day work week. Right. Yep. And it's a little bit like that. You know, the more time I take for myself and and the less we sort of make ourselves available, I feel like I am able to give people much better service in the time I am available because I'm totally there for them. I'm not wishing I was somewhere else. And the more boundaries I've set, I think the better job I do. And I think 
you know, I gross more, I give better service to my clients and, and all around saying no is a good thing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for the kind words, but to reflect on the four day work week, we instituted that because we were on a five day week and we're in the Northeast, our busy seasons, March till July. And typically until we moved to the four day work week by about June, our vets were done like fried. They were cooked. You know, you're, you're putting a year's worth of work into four months. And, uh, I thought, you know what, we're going to be one of those practices that just churns out vets. And that's not why I got into practice ownership. And that's why we went to the four-day week. I was like, my thought was, boy, if, if we can make our vets, you know, be happier, healthier, more of their true self, they'll be better vets. And even though we reduced our capacity by 20% because we, you know, took a day off everybody, our sales actually went up 13% uh, in over a year. Mm-hmm. And I really chalk it up to is that our vets actually really enjoyed being a vet again. They approached each day with a bit of zest and enthusiasm, and they just they just weren't tired. It taught me a lot about people and taking care of people. And you're talking now about taking care of yourself. And I know, you know, when I do annual reviews with all of our vets, that ends up being a theme a lot of the times is how are they taking care of themselves? Because you're right, unless you are sound no pun intended, how are you going to do the best performance? And, you know, we got to take care of ourselves before we take care of our clients and their horses and everything that comes up in our business. And I I love what you said, Mitch, just not being afraid to say no. I think that's a really powerful tool that we should have. Yeah. And I know over the years, I've had clients tell me and heard through the grapevine, I know that there are people that had indicated that they would, would like to use me, but they knew that uh, I was either by myself or just one associate. I wasn't as available, perhaps, as someone who was in or a four or five person practice that could have uh, greater coverage. And they didn't call me for that reason. And my response was, "That's okay. That you know, the the clients have to fit the veterinary practice and philosophy and lifestyle. And if the overriding factor is I have to be available 24-7, then we're probably not a good mix. So that's their decision, and that's my decision. And like both of you had said, and it's it's true in, in other businesses as well, if you read things like the Harvard Business Journal, they're talking all the time about productivity increases when people take more time off, and it's just a mentality that we struggle to wrap our minds around, but once we try it, it works quite well. I have my staff here from eight to four, and I'm religious about making sure that they get home at a reasonable time because I want them to want to come into Mm -hmm. work in the morning and look forward to coming into work in the morning. I don't want it to be a slog and a drag and something that they don't look forward to. So I make sure that they have uh, time away from work uh, so that they uh, continue to feel that way. So let me ask both of you, and I'll, I'll go with to Lisa and then on to you, Mitch. I mean, you're both practice owners. We all probably know of practices or hear story of the practices of other practice owners that maybe don't share or uh, are suspicious of what we're talking about. What, what kind of advice would you give a practice owner that you know is having a hard time attracting associates, having a hard time retaining associates? Lisa, what would you tell uh, a colleague about letting your vets be better for themselves? I mean, that's just such a good question. And I'm not sure I have a great answer for that because I was talking with someone recently, you know, it was in one of Amy Grice's groups that 
we were having a discussion about changing this culture and, and how to change it in these practices that don't feel the same way we do. And, and I don't think anybody had a great idea. I think it's really difficult to change the perception um, when people are really attached to a completely different set of ideals. I don't know how that can be done. What about you, Mitch? What would you say to a classmate of yours who are, you know, people, I work six days a week, they should work six days a week. I worked 15 hours a day, they should work 15 hours a day. Well, and my first response would would be, do you really want to work six days a week, 15 hours a day, uh, and, and wear that badge of honor? If you answer in the affirmative, then I would say, but you also need to understand that not everybody else does. And if you want to attract someone in your practice, you're going to have to accommodate or make some concession to the idea that people have a different approach to lifestyle than you do. But it's funny because I think the first thing I would usually say in a situation like that is raise your fees. Yeah. Because a lot of what it comes down to is they work those long hours and they have their associates work those long hours because that's what they think they need to do to be able to afford to pay those associates and to keep the practice open and running. And usually the first step in overcoming working harder, as everyone knows the saying, work smarter, not harder, uh, be smart, raise your fees, because people are not going to, if you continue to do a good solid job, they're not going to balk at raised fees, and you're going to have a little bit more cash coming in that's going to perhaps allow you to pay that associate and allow them more time and pay yourself and allow yourself more time in a, a more functional way. You know, it's interesting when I talk to a lot of young vets, they know coming into equine practice that it's going to be a bit more hours than, you know, that's doing a small animal clinic for say, they get that. Mm -hmm. But I think a small amount of hours is fine and exaggerated abuse of hours is another thing. And I think that's the fine line. It's, you know, Hey, we know it's busy season. We have to do on call. We're fine with that. Yeah. I think when we start pushing people, that's when they start getting really sour. Well, let me flip this around then, and, and you know, I'll start with you, Lisa. So you're, you're talking to somebody who's about to graduate or doing an internship this year, and they're going into practice. How do we set up a young vet in a practice to protect themselves? Maybe they're in a practice that you know maybe hasn't caught on to taking care of their vets as well as they should. How does somebody push back or, or convince an owner who is set in their ways that there is a different way? Yet again, I I think these are the exact right questions to be asking and things that we all need to be having a lot of conversation about because there is no easy answer to this. And I talk to a lot of students, you know, as they're coming through fourth year um, and they'll, you know, take a couple of weeks in, in the truck here and we'll talk about things. And even before they land in a practice, I do talk to them about trying to choose a practice that has the best odds of not making them a statistic. And these practices where you've seen, you know, an associate or two come through and start and and quit in the same year, year after year after year, that perhaps going to work for that practice in the first place maybe isn't in their best Mm -hmm. interest. And then, you know, once they do end up there, it can be very, very sticky to try to advocate for yourself as a younger veterinarian who finds themselves in a culture that doesn't agree with their own ideals. And, and I think that, you know, there's some strategies to, you know, help someone find a little bit of value 
in their own position inside those practices, um, you know, taking a little bit of control over developing a new profit center, you know, that they can feel some ownership over or doing a little bit of sort of personal branding to find some value in their own self. But, you know, straight up trying to change that culture, I think is going to be a huge, huge challenge. And and the only way it, I think it could be done is just trying to have an open and honest dialogue with other people in the practice about what you value and why you value it and, and be open to listening to their opinions as well. Yeah. How about you, Ametra? Would you suggest to a soon to be vet about what kind of practice to work at? Well, I think Lisa makes a very good point, and that was one of the things I was going to say is think of something that you can go to that practice and and either at the outset or after a short time there, approach the ownership of the practice and say, hey, I'd like to try this and, and sort of put something together of let's take on this project for this set period of time and see if we can turn it into a profitable center. This is what I'd like to do and set some parameters around it and, and what it's going to look like when it's completed and just basically make it a project and see if you can benefit the practice by doing it. And as she said, it's sort of like a self-branding thing. It can be like your area of the practice. Just once you're there, kind of look around and see if there's something that you can turn into something that's going to be beneficial for the practice by doing that, show the ownership that you are vested in sort of the long-term approach and then become more of a philosophical partner in the practice going forward from there. So I think that's a, a really good way to do it if they can find something in the practice that would provide that kind of niche going forward. That, that's one of the things that I would shoot for. And I, I would also agree, interestingly, uh, on the board of directors at the AAP, obviously we're we're looking at this question pretty extensively. And, and one of the things that we're going to try to fit into our programs is uh, what we've called the associate-friendly practice. Uh, and we're trying to find practices that have been successful in bringing on associates, keeping them around for a while, maybe even getting them into partnerships, and then having them participate in the AAEP from the standpoint of talking to other practices about how they did it. And I think that that would be a source for changing the culture at the top, as, as Lisa was mentioning, as well as making some of the younger people coming into the profession aware of who some of these practices might be and who some of the practices that are paying attention to that might be to sort of give them an opportunity to match up. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that was sort of what I was going to sort of segue into is I think with, you know, there's a real mismatch between the amount of vets that are coming into equine practice and the demand. And I think really it is a seller's market right now. And I think young vets, you know, really just you can find, just search for that practice that shares your values and, and your purpose. And they're out there. And I think there are more and more practices that really take care of each other. And I don't think we, that whole, that old paradigm of, of work you to the bones is, that's an old one. And I think there are yeah. more and more of these younger practices, young and old owners that are really investing in the people that work with them. And I think that's a really, really, uh, that's encouraging. I have one last question. And I want to end this on a bright note. And I think we are talking on a really positive way, but I want to ask each of you one last question, and I just think this sort of hopefully will segue into anybody who's listening to this that's thinking about going to equine practice goes, hey, I want, I want to do that too. So here's my question, and that is, 
what was your best experience as a veterinarian so far? It's hard to point to one particular thing for me, but I can say there, there have been a few examples. I, I love working with mares and babies. It's a big part of what I do. And I think the most satisfying thing to me, and it's not just one example, but there's been a number over the years, is when you take that foal that's not doing well, borderline sick and really needs some help to make it, and then it gets through that early stages and ends up becoming a successful athlete or successful at whatever, whatever it's doing. I've had owners take me out to dinner or take me up to the races when, when a foal that I saved is up at the racetrack breaking its maiden and things like that. Those are very, very rewarding moments when you can see one that you literally pulled through and go on and be successful. And, and it's not just the horse being successful, but it's the gratification of that owner uh, of knowing that that horse is there doing what it's doing because of something that you did and pulled it through early on. So uh, though that's not one example, I think that is emblematic of, of the kind of thing that makes it worthwhile for me. Yeah, that's wonderful. How about you, Lisa? I like that story because I'm, I am sitting in my truck on a farm with a nine-day-old foal that we've pulled back from the brink uh, getting ready to do its sort of final last umbilical ultrasound and it's looking like it's going to do well. So yeah, just kind of a nice reminder that that's why we're doing this. Yep. You know, I also don't have a great like specific example of the best thing. You know, I, I feel like I'm at a point in my career as an equine practitioner where I finally left behind, you know, what feels like the early years of practice where you know, it's very stressful. There's all these transition points where you get your first job or if you start a practice, it's very scary. Then the kids come along and you wonder how that's going to affect things. And there's just a lot of stress points along the way. And, and I think that what I'm currently finding the most gratifying is sort of a sense of settling into this life and just generally enjoying every day that goes by and, and feeling comfortable in what I'm doing. I just feel pretty happy and you know like this thing is is pretty awesome and i'm gonna happily do it for another maybe not 38 years uh, oh come on you can do it <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna do that math right now you're probably right though but yeah I, I don't know i'm just i'm loving the life good that's wonderful i would like to thank you both uh, i'm ending this podcast with a big smile on my face because i think it's a great profession and i think some of the hardest working and best people i've ever met are equine veterinarians because they're also the most satisfied with what they do and i think the two of you have given some great examples and some great advice to uh, our profession thank you both thank you all right thank you mike appreciate it for more resources to help you in daily practice please visit the aap's website at aaep.org dot org.